3: Welcome back to The Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host, I'm your guide, as together we cross this time-space continuum to this place that I call The Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And The Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern on The Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, as well as Simul Radio and Simul TV. Now, if you'd like to um, send me an email, it's very simple, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. And uh, for the programming schedule for the Exxon Broadcast Network, which is 724-365, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. ExoNation, my guest this hour is Dr. David Clark, MD. He is the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. He is also assistant director at the Center for Ethics and Clinical Assistant Professors of Gastroenterology Emeritus, both at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And uh, first of all, doctor, welcome to the show. And what is psychophysiologic? Thanks, Rob.
2: Great to be with you. And basically, it's a blend of psychology and physiology, which basically means that uh, the mind and the body are connected to each other. Anybody who's ever blushed with embarrassment or Mm -hmm. felt their abdomen tense up in a tight situation uh, knows that the mind and body are connected. It just turns out to be incredibly important uh, to your health care.
3: As a medical professional, sir, what is your take on the COVID-19 virus?
2: Well, it's been, you know, an utter disaster. But it's yeah. been one that's, uh, you know, frankly, been coming. Uh, I actually gave a lecture on it uh, back in 2012 uh, about what to do if. The uh, hospitals were out of oxygen, or they Mm -hmm. were out of intensive care beds. Uh, We had a big one, as everybody is now uh, remembered, uh, back in 1918. And we pretty much snuck by without one quite so bad. Uh, There was one in a pandemic in 1957 and one in 1968. But really nothing like uh, what we've been experiencing now. And uh, frankly, it's it's been mismanaged in the United States. I think Canada has done a lot better, um, but we're finally getting, um, getting a handle on it. The vaccine, incredibly, was produced in about a quarter of the uh, time that it took for the previous record holder, uh, which was, I think, the measles vaccine, which was made in four years. We got the COVID vaccine in one year, just absolutely uh, amazing. And incredibly grateful that we're going to have that coming out to everybody over the next uh, six to eight months.
3: How long do you believe, based on your medical experience, will it be before life will get back to a new normal? Because I don't think life will ever get back to the old way that it used to be.
2: I'm hoping for the fall. You know, I'm hoping that uh, when we've reached uh, uh, 70, 80, maybe 85% of the population being vaccinated, that uh, there'll be enough safety that we can start behaving uh, as we did before this terrible thing came along.
3: Well, you and I, and I'm sure millions of people around the world will keep their fingers crossed because I know that, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work. My wife, on the other hand, <laughs> she's got cabin fever that we call COVID fever here. And it's not, you know, like she's, we can't go out. We're locked down. We have an emergency state here in the province of Ontario. We have a provincial lockdown. And our prime minister is saying, hey, if you guys can't do it on a provincial level, I'm just going to enact the Emergencies Act and the federal government will take over.
0: Yeah,
2: and you take that incredible stress on people yeah. and you, you throw that on top of whatever other life stresses they're coping with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's psychophysiology in a nutshell. You're just uh, piling um, all of the stress of being locked down. Uh, and, you know, we felt it here, too. It has we've been in a very mild, uh, you know, relatively speaking Uh, Condition here in the state of Oregon, not not nearly so many cases as other states in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. provinces in Canada have suffered. But it's still, it's tough. Uh, You know, I I hear every day from people, friends and and, uh, colleagues, uh, how much uh, difficulty they're having in in coping with this, especially going on as long as it has.
3: Well, I want to thank you and the other members of the medical community, Police, Fire, Rescue, Paramedics, who are at the very front of this war. So thank you, sir, for everything that you do.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. I wish we could do more. Um, but, you know, we, the, um, the light at the end of the tunnel is, is a good light and it's coming.
3: Well, that's great. How did you get started in the field of stress-related illnesses, Doctor?
2: Well, you know, it's almost embarrassing to admit, but I went through uh, nine years of uh, formal medical education and training uh, without... You know, almost all the way through those nine years without Mm -hmm. hearing that you could become truly, uh, seriously physically ill in connection to uh, stress that's going on in your life, either past or present. But I happened to run into a patient, uh, and since some of your uh, guests uh, or your audience um, and listeners may be uh, be eating, uh, and we won't go into details about what her symptoms were, but they were severe. I mean, they were off the charts severe. She had already been to one university hospital with no diagnosis. She came to our university and we couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. But I just happened to ask her about stress and um I phrased it in a way that made her think about stress from uh, her remote past when she was a child, mm-hmm. and she began telling me that she'd been abused, you know, fairly oh. severely as a girl. Um, but this was, you know, 25 years before her illness came on. Mm-hmm. But it turned out there was a psychiatrist uh, that worked at my university that understood these connections. And she was able to cure this severely ill patient uh, in less than three months of weekly counseling sessions. And that just shocked me. I mean, there was nothing in my teaching about uh, organ diseases and structural abnormalities that... Uh, and gave me any hint that such an outcome was possible. So I learned from that psychiatrist, she became something of a mentor for me over the the last year and a half or so of my formal training. And I used what I learned from her in my practice and, and was shocked again to find just how many of these patients there are. I mean, it was 35 or 40% of my practice without even, you know, looking hard. Um, and I learned from my patients after that, uh, They, uh, you know, by interacting with Mm -hmm. them, doing a lot of trial and error over the first four or five years, um, gradually got more and more skilled at understanding the connections between mind and body and and what to do to achieve the best outcomes.
3: Let me ask you then, doctor, is stress a mental illness? Is it a physical illness or is it
2: both? Uh, It's not an illness at all. It's something that we all have in our lives. Uh, We've certainly seen it uh, this year. Mm -hmm. It's just a... um, a challenge mentally or physically uh, to your system. And uh, if we can learn what those challenges are, we can almost always find a good solution. And that leads to uh, alleviation of the uh, patient's physical symptoms. And the outcomes can be uh, extraordinary. The the first story in my book uh, I love telling because this patient had been hospitalized at a major university here in the US 60 times over 15 years with no diagnosis. They had no clue what was wrong with her. But by knowing what to look for, I was able to uncover a connection between her illness and uh, the challenges in her life, mostly from the past, but also the present. And just by her understanding that, just by bringing that connection into conscious awareness, she was pretty much cured on the spot. Uh, She never had another episode of the illness that had put her in the hospital.
3: Is stress is is stress? Um, is it most? Oh, I'm trying to figure this out. To say this, is there any specific age group that stress is related to, or does it go right through the age spectrums?
2: Yeah, it's through the age spectrum. I actually looked at that. I kept data on my own practice uh, for many years, and um, the age distribution was everywhere. From you know, there was a kid who got stressed whenever it was his turn to be the pitcher on his baseball team and it made his stomach hurt. Uh, And, you know, he was referred to me as a specialist because they couldn't figure out uh, why his stomach was hurting. It was only when I started asking him about when and where those pains took place that we made the connection. And then all the other end of the spectrum, one of my patients was 87 years old and she had been ill since she was age eight. So 79 years of illness. Um, And, you know she did great you know once we under, uncovered the connection this terrible stressful event that happened to her when she was 8 years old and she was able to begin to uh, to think about that even at age 87 and she didn't get all the way better she didn't have complete relief but i would say probably 60 or 70% relief over the next couple of years
3: is there one spe- uh, what in your opinion what are the most prevalent causes of stress
2: well, these, these are, again, they're all challenges to your system, either mental or physical. And it can be stress in your life at the moment, which mm-hmm. can be almost anything, uh, you know, something in your workplace or in your marriage or uh, with your kids or your neighbors. Um, it can also be uh, many of my patients are the kinds of people that take care of everybody else in their world, um, but they don't quite find the time to put themselves on the list of people they take care of so they're kind of on a treadmill all the time uh, and they never really get off and, and take a break and that can catch up with you uh, but the biggest shock uh, for me the biggest shock in my medical education was finding out that stress when you were a child could make you ill as an adult and sometimes you know with a long interval before mm-hmm. the illness manifested itself at as with the patient that I mentioned earlier. I mean, she'd been sexually abused as a girl up to the age of 12. Her illness didn't start till she was 35. And that turned out that that childhood stress factor, uh, which could be abuse, uh, but it could be you know a lot of other things as well um, that uh, were, were difficult for the person or knocked their self-esteem down on a long-term basis. Um, and those stresses... Uh, were present in well over half my patients. And then the the last major category of stresses uh, was um, um, mental illnesses that were manifesting physically. So it turns out the majority of people with depression, uh, with post-traumatic stress, or with an anxiety disorder, they're not necessarily recognizing that they have those conditions. They're just manifesting uh, physically and that brings them into the doctor with a symptom of some kind. And they may not even know that they have uh, one of these mental health disorders uh, unless the doctor has been trained specifically dig into the underlying issues so lots of different kinds of stresses that can play into this but i go through them one by one with each of my patients and um, that's how we can find um, which ones they specifically are coping with
3: in your opinion have you found an increase in the number of people who are suffering from stress and the related physical uh, agonies that this this uh, pressure can bring on to them
2: You know, an increase in numbers, you know, I haven't seen that. Uh, And, you know, when I I looked into the history of this uh, for for my second book that Mm -hmm. I wrote, uh, and people have been finding this uh, in patients uh, way back into history. There's even an Egyptian papyrus from uh, something like 1500 B.C. uh, that mentions this condition. So it's, uh, you know, the blend of psychology and physiology uh, has been around... uh, for millennia, right. Uh, it's just that with the tsunami of medical technology that's overtaken the healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the West, uh, uh, in recent decades, um, we've kind of forgotten that. We've kind of gotten away from um, understanding just how ill you can get. Uh, when you have enough stress in your life. All
3: right, doctor, please stand by. You and I have to take our first break. In Exxon Nation, our guest this hour is Dr. David Clark, MD. And for more information on the doctor, visit his website at www.ppdassociation.org. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. welcome back, everyone. That's Paul Young with Every Time You Go Away. And um, if you'd like to listen to past episodes of the X-Zone Radio TV show, visit www.xzoneradiotv.com. And, of course, on the X-Zone TV channel that is exclusive to Simultv at www.simultv.com. And don't forget, Simultv channel and the X-Zone are all part of the new Atari system that'll be coming out to a retail store near you in the very near future, or you can go online and buy it. I believe it's going to be available on Amazon as well. Dr. David Clark is my special guest, and his website is www.ppdassociation.org. And if you'd like to find out more information about Dr. Clark's book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, also visit his website. Um, I would imagine, doctor, in today's society, with it being very competitive, you know, kids go to school, there's the exams, or when they were going to school, there were the exams, and then you had the, um, you know, I'm going to dress better than you, you've got the social challenges that are faced, and then that goes on into college, university, the workplace, how can people best prepare for stress? so that they don't actually fall fall into it and suffer the physiological effects that go along with it.
2: Well, you know, I think it, a lot of it comes down to uh, having a good system for self-care, and this is something that I find a lot of my patients uh, don't have. Uh, some of them came from childhood environments where they had to, mm-hmm focus a great deal of attention on the needs of those around them uh you know they didn't get sufficient opportunities to play for example uh, as kids and when we play as kids what we're learning is uh, how to take care of ourselves what we need for our own uh, enjoyment and relaxation and so a lot of people who come from uh, backgrounds like that even when um, the the parents in the household had excellent intentions uh, that they wanted their kids to uh, uh, be the best that they could be, for example, and they would inadvertently put a lot of pressure on those kids. Uh, and so when you get to be an adolescent or an, a young adult, you may be so focused on uh, achieving goals or on taking care of uh, those around you uh, that you don't put yourself on the list of people you take care of. And so I try to teach people to uh, you know, value themselves, for one thing, to uh, look at their um, uh, their experience as something that they successfully overcame through a lot of uh, uh, heroic perseverance in some mm-hmm. cases, and to think of themselves uh, as worthy of taking some time out uh, just to meet their own needs, to, to spend some time uh, in activity that has no purpose uh, but their own joy. And that turns out to be an essential human skill, uh, that if you can take, uh, ideally, say, a, an afternoon every week, where you're just doing something that has... Um, Uh, is the moral equivalent of finger paints for a four-year-old. You know, the the four-year-old with finger paints doesn't care how many pictures per hour they produce. They don't care about the quality of the work. They don't care who sees it. Uh, They just know they're having a blast. And as soon as it stops being a blast, they they put it aside and they go on to something else uh, that they're going to enjoy doing. And we all need that. And uh, if people can incorporate something like that into their lives, um, it'll keep their stress level... um, much lower than it would be otherwise, let's put it that way.
3: Doctor, what are some of the common symptoms people can uh, get from stress?
2: Uh, you know, the list is virtually endless, and it goes uh, literally from head to toe. I mean, hmm. people can get migraines, they can get ringing in the ears, uh, almost any kind of headache, uh, neck pain, low back pain, you know, pain anywhere in the spine, visual disturbances, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, temporal mandibular joint disorders, that's in the jaw, hmm. Uh, And the trigeminal is in the face, uh, difficulty swallowing, uh, numbness and tingling, joint pains, uh, chest pain, chronic cough, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, pain in the female pelvis, pain in the genitalia for either gender, um, It's uh, the the only common denominator is that my patients tend to get uh, more than one symptom at a time, and the symptoms have a tendency to move around from place to place. They don't always do that, and some people do have just one symptom, um, but there is a tendency for uh, migrating symptoms and for multiple symptoms, uh, symptoms that go on for long periods of time. Um, You know, and it's 35 or 40 percent of um, most primary care medical practices, so uh, not only is the range of symptoms uh, quite large, but the, the number of patients is quite large as well.
3: So are any of these symptoms life-threatening?
2: The only really life-threatening uh, aspect of this is if you get so depressed you think of killing yourself. And that's not you know, an unusual problem uh, in this population if people don't get the attention that they need. Uh, the, the symptoms of severe depression can manifest primarily uh, in a physical way, with a physical symptom like one of the ones I just mentioned, right. but if you come to your doctor and they don't know to ask about, you know, are you um, losing your energy level, have you had uh, loss of interest in activities you used to enjoy, uh, are you not sleeping well? Is your appetite off? Have you been thinking your, your life is has no purpose or is not worth living? Uh, it's critically important to ask those questions of people so that you can uncover that they're depressed because many of the patients, if you ask them the, the simple straightforward question, do you feel depressed? They will say no. They might admit to being frustrated or mm-hmm. exasperated or stressed out. They might tell you that their physical symptoms have got them at the end of their rope. You'll hear things like that commonly, but they may flat out deny feeling depressed. So you have to dig into some of these other symptoms that commonly accompany depression uh, to make sure that you uh, uncover that because uh, there's, a, there's a well-known statistic that many people who have successfully died by suicide have visited their doctor doctor. doctor within the previous month. And very likely the visit would have, you know, if the doctor had known what to ask, would have uncovered the issues that were going on and and been able to prevent uh, that suicide in many cases.
3: So how would one, especially you, sir, since you're an expert in the field, how do you successfully treat stress-related illnesses then?
2: Well, it starts with uncovering the particular stress or stresses that the patient is suffering from, and then we go from there. So if it's a stress that's in your life at the moment and we can connect that with the uh, person's symptoms, Mm -hmm. that gets them started working on um, a solution. So, for example, if you had an abusive parent and you're still interacting with that parent uh, in the present day, uh, and you and you realize that your physical symptoms are linked to interacting with that person, um, then that that's going to motivate you to set some boundaries so that uh, your interactions that are harmful to you with that person will be less. Um, if it's a childhood stress, um, you know, psychotherapy is often called for. But we've we've got a lot of books out there now that are. Based on scientific evidence that can give people a lot of insight in overcoming um, that particular issue. Uh, There's also an app, believe it or not, uh, that uh, my colleagues and I have uh, consulted on, and we put a lot of our experience uh, into the exercises that are in that app. It's called Curable, Um, highly recommended, costs about uh, half as much as an hour of psychotherapy. So lots of resources there. And then if you've if your stress happens to be one of the mental health conditions—depression, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress, or an anxiety disorder—we've uh, got therapy for that and medication for some people as well.
3: So am I to understand that if it, if the stress is causing, for example, PTSD and other stress-related illnesses, mental illnesses, how can we not classify stress as a mental illness then?
2: Well, it, uh, it can cause uh, mental illness. If you mm-hmm. have a, enough stress, it can absolutely cause it. I, I just tend to think of it as a challenge to your system. And if you're coping with it uh, in a healthy way and, um, you know, everybody's got stress in their life, but if you're able to cope with it, um, then it's really not producing a mental illness in you because you're, you're successfully dealing with it. But when the stress level is uh, too high or goes on for too long or impacted you at such a young age that you you know had no uh, defenses uh, for it at that time, or you um, were impacted as a child and you had no um, uh, sources of uh, resilience for you at that time, or no sources of support that could counteract the stresses you were coping with, then yeah, it can reach the level of uh, producing um, mental challenges for you. So it it's really more of a Uh, a challenge for people rather than an illness in in and of itself. Do you find that
3: uh, ACE or Adverse Childhood Experiences is considered to be one of the leading causes of stress?
2: Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, this was a shock to me just how common this is. Uh, The original ACE study was published in 1998, and they found that actually a majority of the population had at least one ACE and out of the 10 that they um, studied and that they searched for in their population. And they they studied 18,000 people. So this was a uh, very large uh, and impressively done study. They found that one in six people had four or more of these adverse childhood experiences uh, in their background. And the group that had four or more suffered a uh, huge range of adverse consequences to their mental and physical health uh, and to their behaviors. Um, They had, uh, you know, higher incidences of uh, cancer, heart disease, uh, diabetes, autoimmune disease, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, drug abuse, emphysema, obesity. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And they had triple the risk of developing these uh, psychophysiologic symptoms. So it's a uh, It was probably the most important public health study uh, of the last 25 years, and there have been well over 70 uh, follow-up studies uh, triggered by those Mm -hmm. initial results that have just confirmed and expanded it. So it's it's a huge um, finding that um, more and more physicians are now taking into account when they evaluate their patients. You know, what was
3: the number, 18,000 people?
2: Yeah, that was how many they studied in the original original research.
3: Now, were these people in, um, in lower income brackets, in the upper income brackets? Were these high school graduates? Were they college graduates? Were they white-collar workers?
2: They were pretty much a broad spectrum of um, middle-class uh, Southern Californians, to be honest. That's where the study was done. Um, these were people who had health insurance, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, in America not everybody does. Um, and especially at that time in 1998. Um, So they were, you know, a middle class, and I would say probably less representative of people of color um, than the United States as a whole. Uh, There have been some replications of this study in uh, urban environments, environments with lower socioeconomic status. uh, And in those environments, the uh, prevalence of adverse childhood experiences is even higher.
3: I would only imagine that to be true because these are lower class income people and there is more alcohol abuse. There's more drug abuse. The crime factors are higher, leading to all stress as well as the educational system. So we've got to take our news break. Please stand by, sir. XO Nation, our guest this hour is Dr. David Clark. He's a medical doctor. And if you'd like to find out more about the doctor or how you can get a copy of his book, which is entitled, They Can't Find Anything Wrong?, visit his website at www.ppdassociation.org. And that's www.ppdassociation.org. And Dr. Clark and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news right here in the X Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, you can always send me an email. Give me your thoughts. Give me your opinions. Are you a believer or are you a skeptic? Exxon at exxoneradiotv.com. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. www.ppdassociation.org is our website for our guest this hour, and we're talking to Dr. David Clark, and he is also the author of They Can't Find Anything Wrong. We're talking about stress, and uh, stress is very real exonation. A number of people that I know have been diagnosed with stress related uh, physiological diseases and um, first of all doctor thanks very much and and thank you for the work that you do to get out your message because this is a very important message
2: well thank you it's been very rewarding work uh, to see people who have sometimes been going from doctor to doctor for many years and to have them finally find a solution uh, is is really rewarding I had a doctor that uh, I had taught to use these concepts and she took me aside and said, you know, I've been working with this now for six months and it's put the joy back into my work.
3: That in itself is, uh, is you know, so gratifying to hear that somebody is taking your, your work and using it in their work and making people happier as well as giving them a better satisfaction of their work. Then why is it not, doctor, that more doctors do not know about these stress-related illnesses, why isn't this taught? Why don't they get bulletins? Why doesn't somebody wake all these doctors up then?
2: Yeah, we're we're working on that, Rob. Uh, my colleagues and I are trying to get the message out. You know, when you think about uh, um, having 30 or 40 percent of the problems that come your way every day and you haven't been formally trained in what to do for them. Mm -hmm. uh, It's no wonder that it produces a a lot of burnout for people. But the great thing is that once you learn how to understand this, diagnose it, treat it, it, you turn these patients from among the most frustrating into the most rewarding. And to see the outcomes that they get, they're every bit as good Uh, as I would get with my patients with gallstones and ulcers and inflammation uh, and the rest of my practice. Um, So as to, you know, why they haven't learned it yet, well, it really is a different way of thinking. Uh, You know, I learned about structures and organ diseases uh, for years and years. And it's a bit like uh, training to become a plumber and then finding out after you've finished all your training and you're ready to go out there and work as a plumber on your own. And Mm -hmm. suddenly you find out, oh, you need to become an electrician now. And, you know, a lot of people, they just, you know, they don't want to go there. So, what we emphasize is uh, bringing a behavioral health clinician or a mental health clinician um, into your medical practice you know maybe one of those people to every three or four or five uh, medical doctors uh, so that there can be an interaction so that they can provide uh, the support that you need to to take over when you uncover a psychological can of worms you want somebody who knows what they're doing to pick up that ball and help the patient with it so having a uh, what we call an integrated practice where you've got both the mind and the body in the same building at the same time uh, ready to call on them when you need it um, that turns out to be the model that works the best and i think once people start seeing that um, they're going to um, be a lot more enthusiastic about this approach
3: the fact that these people go to doctor, to doctor, to doctor without getting the proper diagnosis, it's costing them money, it's costing the insurance companies money, it's costing the government money. Would this not be more advantageous if the doctors, the insurance companies, and the government got together and did a, a total program to not only enlighten the public, but enlighten the, uh, the medical community as well?
2: you are absolutely right it is costing a fortune i still remember one gentleman i saw who'd been suffering abdominal pain for 55 years and i saw him back in the days when we didn't have the electronic medical record that we do today Mm -hmm. and he came with his uh, paper chart uh from the files and it was uh, volume three uh it was eight centimeters thick and it was full of diagnostic tests and, and trials of different kinds of treatments, uh, none of which had done him a darn bit of good. Uh, it turned out that, uh, as with so many of my patients, he'd been physically abused as a boy. Uh, I sent him and so, so much so that he ran away from home at 15 and never came back, never saw his dad again, who was the principal abuser. Um, I sent him off to a, um, a class that we had for uh, adults who'd been abused as children. It was two hours a week for eight weeks. By the end of the eight weeks, he had no more symptoms. Um, You know, and but just, you know, as you pointed out, just think of the amount of money that is represented in that eight centimeter thick chart. And that was only volume three. So yeah, we're, uh, we're hoping that the, at least in the US, the system will change from Uh, paying all of us um, by the procedure that we do to people and instead paying us to take care of a population of patients. So give us a lump of money and help us to uh, take care of those patients, give them the best health that we can uh, for that lump of money. And we're going to find our way to this work because we get the best outcomes for people's health and we do it uh, in the much uh, cheaper uh, pathway.
3: Do you believe the new administration in the U.S. is going to take any part of this?
2: Yes, I do. I think that um, Mr. Biden and uh, his healthcare care administrators uh, are going to uh, resume uh, moving in this direction uh, where we stop paying uh, for uh, individual procedures that mm-hmm. we do to people. Because, you know, whatever you pay for, you're going to get more of it. Uh, you know, we've had... Uh, An explosion, uh, for example, of the number of spine surgeries that's that's being done to people over the last 20 years, even though we've also had an explosion in the amount of research that shows that most of those surgeries don't do people any good. You know, that kind of thing has to stop. And I think uh, people are uh, finally coming to their senses and uh, are making the shift in how healthcare is paid for in the U.S. that's going to bring that about. So, yeah, I'm optimistic. It's moving uh, at a glacial pace, but uh, sometimes glaciers can pick up speed.
3: Why, why were there more spinal operations?
2: Well, you get paid a lot of money for doing a spinal operation, uh-huh. and uh, that's how spinal surgeons are trained, that... Um, if you see an abnormality in the spine in a patient who's got pain, uh, then uh, you believe that if you fix that abnormality, it will alleviate the pain. Um, but it turns out that if you uh, do uh, spinal MRIs or x-rays, on, um, and this has been done back all the way back in the 90s on, let's say, 100 people, who feel perfectly fine. Their, their spines have uh, n- not a bit of uh, discomfort uh, associated with them. So you put them all through an x-ray and you might guess, okay, if the person doesn't have any pain, you're not going to find much wrong with their spine wrong. Uh, They found lots of things wrong with people's spines, even though this was a group, again, that had not uh, a single symptom referable to their spine. They felt fine. They had no back pain. Um, And yet, uh, just through the normal aging process, uh, there were all kinds of um, disc abnormalities and uh, vertebral bone abnormalities uh, that people had that weren't causing them any discomfort at all. Um, when the same person develops stress-related pain and a, an X-ray is done and shows these abnormalities, the spine surgeon looks at it and says, oh, you've got this abnormality, you've got this pain, we've got to fix it. Well, one of my colleagues um Was so disappointed by the outcomes of doing that, uh, and he'd heard about the psychological approach, um, he started putting his patients through a psychological program that he called prehabilitation, clever name, and they worked with a psychologist hoping that the the surgical outcomes would then be better. Well, to his surprise, the psychologist was curing his patients right and left, and most of them never needed any surgery.
3: So this is just one doctor that is doing this. How many other doctors are doing this, uh, you know, doing the same psychological profile prior to surgery compared to the number of doctors who just hear the patient say they're in pain, they look at an x-ray or an MRI and see something that, that could be interpreted as the 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 cause of the pain and put the patient through a very expensive Spine surgery with a very long rehab attached to it.
2: Yeah, and with a very poor outcome attached yeah. to it. The, the percentage of people that uh, experience improvement from that surgical process uh, is just unconscionably low. And unfortunately, at least in the spine surgery world, very, very few uh, clinicians are, uh, are following this approach, but it's, it's growing uh, in other areas. And surprisingly, it's not the big academic centers uh, that are doing this. Uh, what I'm finding is that it's smaller communities, places where, um, if you will, the clinicians are, are closer to their patients, where they know them personally, because they, they all live in, in relatively small communities, or right. uh, at least not the, you know, the big cities. Um, where they have maybe a little more time uh, to spend uh, talking to their patients, um, and that's that's where I see it happening. Albany, New York, uh, a small town. Uh, I'm trying at uh, Temple, Texas, uh, um, <clears throat> another town in Eastern Oregon. I'm uh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, Western Colorado that I'm I'm blocking on, but uh, you know a number of communities around the United States that are not quite as large. Um, this concept is is really taking hold, and um, it's it's been great to see. Everybody loves it.
3: So is this part of the new holistic uh, method uh, teamwork of doctors and as well as uh, psychologists, physiotherapists, and and other team members that work with a patient? Is this what it, we're talking about here? Bringing everybody in to work with a patient?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the phrase that's uh, gained currency lately is integrated care, which means you have a, a mental health clinician or a behavioral health clinician working uh, hand-in-hand with a medical clinician. There's what's called a warm handoff is a popular phrase where the medical clinician does the initial evaluation. They think that there might be a a psychology, physiology component to that patient's illness. They bring in the behavioral or mental health professional right as part of the same visit uh, to uh, extend the interview, um, you know, looking into these areas that I've talked about uh, this evening uh, about current stresses, childhood stresses, and mental health conditions. And that that combination of the medical and the psychological in the same uh, office visit goes over very well with patients. They do look at it as holistic. They're not. They're not resentful. They're not feeling like we're saying, "Oh, this is all in your head," and right. and dismissing you. Uh, this is in your brain, actually. This is. Uh, uh, there are studies now that show that there are neuroanatomic changes, which is a fancy way of saying the the circuits in your brain that perceive and process pain signals from the body. They're different. Uh, in people with these disorders. So there really is a, uh, a physical cause for this, um, but we can uncover that uh, that's going on. Uh, we can treat it successfully, and we can achieve um, outcomes every bit as good as we can for every other kind of patient.
3: All right, Dr. Clark, please stand by. You and I have to take our final break for this hour. And ExoNation, if you'd like to find out more about Dr. Clark, the great work that he does. Or if you'd like to get a copy of his book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, visit his website at www.ppdassociation.org. That's www.ppdassociation.org. And I'll be back on the other side of this break with Dr. Clark as we wrap up this hour here in the x from our broadcast center and studios. In Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, my email address is XONE at TV.com. The Exxon website is TV.com. And for all the programming that we have available for you, 724 365, here on the XONE Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. <music> And welcome back, everyone. Um, don't forget the x TV channel with some of the greatest sci-fi movies, documentaries, NASA movies, informational movies, as well as the x radio TV show available for you on x TV channel. And that's on Simultv. For more information, visit Simultv's website at www.simultv.com. First of all, uh, Dr. Clark, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing this valuable information with our listeners. And explanation: uh, if you'd like to find out more about Dr. Clark, visit his website at ppdassociation.org. And the name of his book is They Can't Find Anything Wrong. It seems that one of the major factors when we're talking about stress, as we have been for this past hour, is child abuse. How do we turn this around, Dr.?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, The common denominator that I find um, in my patients who've suffered adversity in childhood is that a couple of things. Number one, their self-esteem is usually knocked down on a long-term basis, and Mm -hmm. abuse can certainly do that. But some of my patients say, no, I wasn't abused. But when you talk to them for a while, you find that nothing they ever did was good enough for their parents. You know, they couldn't you know, run through a brick wall and the parents sure. uh, wouldn't praise them for doing it. Uh, and over a, a period of time, that just made them feel like second-rate human beings. Um, so there's there's quite a range of different uh, treatments of children that can end up with long-term consequences. Um, what I ask my patients to um, think about is uh, – If uh, they were a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home, and they had to watch a child that they care about growing up exactly as they did, um, how would that make them feel? Would they be happy with that? Would they be okay with that? Or would they be sad or angry uh, to watch something like that happen, um, even for just a week? And if it would affect them emotionally to watch a child they care about grow up with all the same challenges that that they had, Mm -hmm. um, that's a signal to me that they're still likely to be coping with um, some significant issues. And so how do we help people with that? Number one, with the self-esteem I try to get people to uh, look back at the challenges they overcame uh, as if um, they were heroic, because you know they they absolutely fit that definition. A hero in our society is somebody who's overcome a difficult physical or mental challenge uh, for a good cause, and my childhood stress survivors uh, have done exactly that. And if they can think of themselves as heroic, uh, which they should because they've earned it, um, then you know that begins a 180-degree flip in their self-image that can be a a key foundation uh, for their personal growth um, from that point onwards. And it it also helps them enormously with their their present-day relationships. Uh, If they're, for example, in a bad marriage or they're uh, they're dating somebody uh, who's treating them uh, with less than full respect, Mm -hmm. uh, once they start thinking of themselves as heroic, um, it can help them to recognize that they deserve better and either that person needs to change, their the person they're in a relationship with needs to change their behavior, or uh, my patient is going to move on because they no longer feel um, uh, that they deserve to be treated that way. So that's really important. Um, Another aspect of overcoming the long-term impact of ACEs is to get people to take more time in self-care, to uh, set aside more time for their own joy. And and that goes hand in hand with the self-esteem. Once mm-hmm. you feel like you are a worthy human being, um, you're going to feel more deserving of taking time for yourself. So those two things uh, work together. There's there's more to it than that, sure. obviously, but those are those are fundamental.
3: But how do we how do we get ahead of the curve? You know, I understand that these are patients who are coming to see you. You're making the diagnosis. You're helping them. How do we get to the root cause of child abuse? so that they don't have to suffer from these kind of stresses, so they don't have to suffer from these physiological disorders?
2: Yeah, it's a, um, a key question, and we certainly need to put more resources uh, into our uh, child care and protective services uh, resources. Um, from my perspective, working primarily with adult patients, mm-hmm. um, I try to get them to... Uh, um, treat their own children uh, in a different way, uh, not to uh, lean on them quite so hard, to be a, a base of support uh, for them whenever possible so right. that we can break the cycle. So that, uh, you know, so often uh, a child who is abused by a parent, well, that parent was themselves abused and the parent before that. And it, I've seen, uh, you know, this. Um, explained in, in a number of generational situations that I've been involved in where I've, I've seen that it goes back in the history of that family. And so what I try to do is, is break the cycle, um, help parents to do uh, a better job with their own kids so that um, it won't keep on going, echoing down through the generations.
3: Would it not be worthwhile getting a hold of the educational community as well and giving them the statistics, your findings? So that they could actually make a change in their curriculum to include these uh these preventative measures, so that if there are things going on at home that this could be caught at an earlier stage, and these children could be could be taken care of can be helped
2: yeah you're absolutely right, Robin, and the schools are uh you know they've always been aware of this to an extent but i don't think they were aware of the uh, the full amount of this that was going on if you take a, a 2000 student uh, high school for example we're talking about 300 of those students have experienced sexual abuse um prior to the age of 15 so it, you know the numbers are are just enormous and that's that's just sexual abuse that's only one yeah. of the 10 aces uh that were studied by Dr. Philides. But to their credit, you know, the educational system, uh, you know, it's not one that I've studied in detail, but I know that they're aware of this. Uh, We're seeing uh, what's called trauma-informed care uh, become uh, more and more prevalent through the educational system, uh, through the uh, Juvenile incarceration system, Mm -hmm. through uh, mental health, through uh, pediatrics, Uh, you know, there's a uh, famous TED talk um, by a woman named Nadine Burke Harris. Uh, who is who was recently named the Surgeon General of the state of California, uh, who is a pediatrician in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, wrote a wonderful book about her experiences uncovering aces in her pediatric population. So the awareness of this uh, is uh, exploding in the last, uh, I would say five or ten years, and it's going to make a difference, no question. But when
3: it comes to child abuse, you have two you have two distinct, uh, separations of actions. You have the perpetrator, the parent, and then you've got the victim, the child. Now, how does this actually work with taking care of the perpetrator? Who, if they are the result of what they went through as a child, they too are victims. So how does society and the medical community deal with something like this?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, a lot of uh, people who are perpetrators, um, they are externalizing their stress in that way. You know, my patients are internalizing their I stress. See. They have uh, a lot of, um, let's say, repressed emotions. You know, if you're mistreated as a child, right. you know, you're going to have emotions around that. But yeah. in order to survive that early environment, um, you learn how to repress those emotions. You learn how to stuff them away uh, somewhere you know, deep inside or in the back of your head. And later on as an adult, um, you've stuffed them so deep you can't put them into words and consequently they express themselves um, as physical symptoms and it's part of the, uh, the treatment approach to help people recognize those emotions and put them into words. But the people who are perpetrators, the people who are committing violence, the permitting the people who are committing sexual assaults, mm-hmm. um, they are externalizing that stress they are turning it out uh, into their, uh, essentially rage uh, against the world and you know those are individuals that aren't necessarily going to want to accept um, any help unless perhaps it's uh court ordered but uh, it can be very difficult to uh, get individuals with those issues to come into the system uh, looking for help uh, and getting the support that they need so that's that's one of the big dilemmas uh, that we face.
3: In your opinion, sir, what is the largest, the largest holdback that you and the other members of the medical community who look at stress the way that you do, are finding?
2: I think just the recognition the, the simple concept that stress from the present or the past can cause real, live physical symptoms, uh, absolutely as severe and long-lasting. As symptoms caused by any other form of illness. That was the the shock to me, just how ill you could get. Many of my patients have been hospitalized. Mm -hmm. One of my patients, a 17-year-old, was getting around-the-clock morphine in in huge doses that you'd normally associate with late-stage cancer patients, which she absolutely didn't have. So the the severity of this is, is enormous. And if we can get physicians to recognize, yes, this is happening, and it's happening in Thirty-five or forty percent of your outpatients—that um, alone would be a giant first step.
3: Well, taking the uh, just taking the example of the seventeen-year-old who was getting these massive amounts of, of of morphine. What were the physical symptoms that were being shown to the medical staff who were giving her this uh, or him this abundant amount of uh, of narcotic?
2: It was abdominal pain that had been going on for about 18 months and getting progressively worse. Uh, when I was consulted uh, to see this patient, uh, they had been in the hospital for 70 straight days. Wow. And I was the uh, the seventh gastrointestinal specialist who had been called to see her.
3: Okay. She was given all these. Uh, the person was complaining about the this abdominal pain. Were they able to come up with any prognosis, or was the fact that she was just in pain enough reason for them to give her these large amounts of of morphine?
2: Yeah, Rob, they didn't know what else to do. But fortunately, I was able to uncover the stress, and Mm -hmm. in fact, it was, uh, as is all too common in adolescence, everybody in her family was trying to do the right thing, but there were some circumstances uh, involved that uh, led to enormous stress uh, on this uh, young lady. Um, but once we uncovered it and we were able to change some of the dynamics in the family, uh, everybody was, was very willing to cooperate, which was a great thing to see. Uh, she was um, out of the hospital in a week, and she was off of all the pain medications in about 30 days.
3: Fascinating. Great work, doctor. Could you? Uh, we're just about nearly out of time. Could you let our listeners know how they can find out more about you and where they can get your book? I've been promoting your website. Give it to them one more time.
2: Yeah, ppdassociation.org. We've got lots of resources on there. We've got books. We've got questionnaires that people can analyze their own symptoms with. We've got videos. We've got a uh, online uh, course that, that's for professionals, but uh, the public can take it as well. And the book, my book is called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. And I've edited a second book called Psychophysiologic Disorders. It's for professionals, but it's written in plain English.
3: Doctor, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Continued success and stay safe, sir.
2: Thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure.
3: My pleasure too, sir. Take care. And ExoNation, once again, if you'd like to find out more information about our good uh, doctor this hour, Dr. David Clark visit his website, www.ppdassociation.org. And once again, the name of his book is They Can't Find Anything Wrong. Now, I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, it's very simple, www.xzoneradiotv.com. And on all social media sites, X-Zone Radio TV. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon. Don't go away.
0: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in.